0: This is No More Normal. I'm Khalil Ekalouna. 2020 was a long year. I mean, really long. It was a constant barrage of reality-shaping events, and it hasn't stopped. What is different for us now that we are on the verge of maybe, knock on wood, coming out of the pandemic? How are the leaders we elected approaching their duties now? How are activists applying what they've learned to push their causes forward now? How are the people who experienced hardship pre-pandemic adapting to a possible post-pandemic life? How are people who made their influence known in the general election proceeding into the future?
1: Over 50,000 Navajos in the state of Arizona. You gotta keep in mind, we, we got Navajos in New Mexico and Utah, 50,000 plus Navajos voting for Biden and Harris. I think that was key.
0: That is Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez. On episode 26 of Nomono, we also talk with New Mexico state officials, people who help students experiencing homelessness, an advocate for prisoners' rights, organizers from the Red Nation, essential workers, New Mexico's Secretary of State, and more. No More Normal reflects on the last year while keeping our focus on the future. Happy Easter Sunday to all who participate. I'm going to toss our coverage from Nomono headquarters to Santa Fe and interim newsroom director Zaley Pollan.
2: I'm speaking today with Archbishop John Wester of the Archdiocese of Santa Fe. I know this is a really busy Holy Week for you, so thank you for sharing your time with us.
3: It's an honor to be with you, and thank you very much. Pleasure.
2: This has been a long year for many people. It's been a year of fear and isolation, maybe loss of a loved one, a job, security. Can you share some of the most impactful stories that you've heard or experienced this past year?
3: The stories that are really touched the heart, my heart and all of our hearts are those who, as you just indicated, Zelly, have lost loved ones. It's just so tragic, not only the losing of the loved ones, but the way not being able to be there with them in the hospital, not being able to mourn and grieve in the usual ways. This isolation and limitation that are being connected to one another has been a real burden in the cross. So that's really touched my heart. I had one funeral, uh, elderly couple. They were in their late 80s and early 90s. And the whole family got COVID-19. And uh, the deacon and his wife passed away within three days of each other. And so we did a double uh, funeral. So it's been a tough time, as you say. But on the other hand, there have been graces too. I've been touched by so many people who have gone out of their way to visit shut-ins and kind of drop groceries off on the porch and make sure they were cared for and people that are calling on the phone or emailing, trying to stay connected. So there's a lot of stories of outreach and connectedness that have been very inspiring as well.
2: Of course, this year, like last year, large gatherings, including the pilgrimage to Chimayo, is canceled. Do you have any words of advice for your parishioners?
3: Well, just to emphasize that the pilgrimages, which are so much a part of our custom or tradition here in New Mexico, but just to really encourage people to not, not to have them this year, to stay home, we canceled them. The, the sanctuary Sanctuario Chimayo has been closed now until the Easter Monday. So that we've really tried to emphasize the importance of not putting people in harm's way. And of course, to all the other support personnel, the road workers, the Department of Transportation of New Mexico, the keeping them safe not having them out. So we encourage people to make a pilgrimage of the heart You know, pilgrimages are meant to reflect the journey of faith that we're all on. All of us are on a journey of faith or a journey of life, depending on your own belief structure. We're all on a journey. We're growing as part of life. And so a pilgrimage is meant to symbolize and reflect that reality. So if we're not doing it physically this year, we can make a a personal pilgrimage of faith. At home, just in praying, recognizing, Lord, I'm on a journey, you know, where have I been? Where am I? Where am I going? Take stock of my life. And then to ask God for the grace to move forward. So the key is to open our hearts to God. The pilgrimage opens our hearts to God and to one another.
2: During the past administration, and honestly, for centuries, religion has been used as a weapon of intolerance and even hatred. I notice that you have a resource for families during Holy Week, including new stations of the cross that entails overcoming racism. Can you talk about that?
3: Yes. You know, we've been very touched by the heightened awareness of the inequality. The pandemic has underscored the disparity between people of color, the poor, and those who have more in our society. They are affected more deeply by the pandemic. More get sick, more die, more hospitalized. So I think it's important for us to be aware of how we as human beings develop consciously or unconsciously prejudices, systemic racism. These things are reality. We can't deny them. And real people suffer because of them. The Archdiocese of Santa Fe, we've been very conscious trying to raise an awareness of the uh, disparities in this case with the African Americans in our society and how we can seek to eradicate as best we can, move toward eradicating the walls that divide us and the prejudices and all of that. And it's not just recently with the uh, terrible attack on the Asian Pacific Islanders and Asians in our country, are also the poor, you know, th- these are all areas where we have to recognize our equality, that we're all children of God, that we're all created equal, that God loves all of us, and that we're all called to be one with the Lord.
2: You said in your last interview with KUNM that people don't like change, but that they have to become adaptable. What gifts do you think COVID has brought us this past year?
3: As human beings, we don't like it. We, we, we resist change. We, we become comfortable even with things that are not so savory. We just kind of get used to it. And so it's important for us to see that change is a part of life and that we need to and that's that's the message of spring it's a mystery it's a paradox we change but we also retain the goodness that love and the, and the traditions that are important but they're always open to kind of evolving and so i think that the pandemic has helped us to see that whether we like it or not <laughs> it changed to kind of uh, care more for our health care more for others for example wearing a mask it helps others and it's not really for my protection It's that your mask helps me and my mask helps you. So it's maybe the changes and the heightened awareness of how we need each other, of how we're connected to one another.
2: Are you similarly encouraging people to get vaccinated?
3: Yes, very much. I think to be vaccinated is again, a sign of caring for one another because it helps us to achieve herd immunity It helps to keep us safe. To be vaccinated is an act of charity. It kind of enlightens self-interest and it's also looking out for each other.
2: We've been speaking with Archbishop John Wester of the Archdiocese of Santa Fe. Thank you so much for being with us today.
3: Well, thank you, Zelia. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and I wish you a blessed Easter and all that is good.
0: As the pandemic was sweeping the globe last spring, I spoke with Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez about the emergency unfolding on the Navajo Nation. Conditions have changed, but like I said, we are not done with this yet. I spoke with him this week to reflect on the past year and asked him how he thinks about what the Navajo Nation and the country have experienced.
1: Our thoughts and prayers go out, first of all, to our Navajo people who've lost loved ones. So we've lost 1,247 of our citizens Hmm. throughout this pandemic. So our thoughts and prayers go out to those families. 30,095 have contracted the virus, of course. The majority of them have recovered. 10, 15% may have some long-term health problems. Those individuals will most likely need some long-term care. I think that's like that throughout the country as well.
0: You have had a very, very successful vaccine rollout. You're outpacing some states. Why do you think it has gone so well this far, and where are the gaps where you think you all can improve?
1: Throughout this pandemic, we have utilized um, technology, you know, being on social media, using the radio, television to get the word out. Every Tuesdays and Thursdays, we have uh, town hall meetings, just informing the Navajo public, getting them updated on what's happening here, our response to the pandemic. And I think that is one of the reasons we have brought confidence to taking the vaccine, you know, an informed citizen is more likely to, you know, follow science. And we have had uh, folks on our town hall meetings like Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, Dr. Burlov from Pfizer. So percent fully vaccinated here on the Navajo Nation is 40 percent uh, The percent administered. 87.5%, in you are right, hired in most jurisdictions uh, throughout the country, maybe even throughout the world. Yeah. And I, and I think it's just because, uh, you know, we brought confidence to taking the vaccine. And plus, on top of that, you know, Renavro people recognized that we we did get hit hard. And in order to push back on the virus, we got to get back vaccinated. And on Monday, we announced that the uh, UK variant is now identified to
0: be on the Navajo Nation. Through contact tracing, have you been able to detect if the UK variant was spread to anyone else?
1: Well, for that incident, the contact tracers isolated that, and we are happy to say that it didn't spread to other people. Of course, you got this UK variant in every single state throughout the country, in all 50 states. We're monitoring. Uh, the U.K. variant, other variants here on the Navajo
0: Nation. Let me ask you a question about the comparison between the previous Trump administration and the current Biden-Harris administration. Is the new administration much more open to talking with you, taking meetings with you, really addressing your concerns?
1: You know, with the CARES Act Fund, there was not one penny allocated to the tribes until Congress intervened. Mm -hmm. And they put into the overall package $8 billion for tribal communities. That's how the legislation passed. We finally got our share of resources way at the end uh, of the year. And uh, right now we use most of that for direct relief and infrastructure development. To your question, what's the difference? I mean, night and day, come on, you know. We had a major disaster declaration on the desk of the previous president for some time to sign because that would give resources to the Navajo Nation in terms of mental health, also other assistance from FEMA. But it just sat on the desk. And so once the new president was inaugurated, it took just days for him to sign the emergency disaster declaration for the Navajo Nation. and we got quick action from the federal government. And so we do have a seat at the table in uh, a lot of these discussions right now. Of course, as you know, with the elections. For instance, the state of Arizona here for the Navajo Nation, even through a pandemic, we had record-breaking turnout. Over 50,000 Navajos in the state of Arizona. You got to keep in mind, we we got Navajos in New Mexico and Utah. 50,000 thousand plus Navajos voting for Biden and Harris. I think that was key. If you look at the math, Mm -hmm. the Navajo people was very important to switching the state of Arizona from red to a blue state this past election. And I think because of that, people are listening to the Navajo Nation. And I always, as the president of Navajo Nation, I will remind folks like uh, the president and their cabinet. Don't take the Native American vote for granted. You need to be
0: engaged because, you know, we are a force when it comes to elections. He is the president of the Navajo Nation, President Jonathan Nez. Thank you again for talking with me. Really appreciate your time, sir.
1: Thank you. And God bless.
0: God bless you as well. For the past year, the Marshall Project has been keeping track of the number of people that contracted COVID-19 inside state prisons in the United States. As of April 1st, that number is 391,782. And that's not counting jails where over half of New Mexico's incarcerated people reside. The New Mexico Prison and Jails Project is a new organization that advocates for the rights of people behind bars. I spoke with Director Steve Allen to find out what conditions are like for the people he
4: Humans need contact with other people. Cutting people off from that contact is a form of torture and has been described as such in the academic literature for decades. I would describe solitary confinement in and of itself as a form of abuse. There are these more extreme cases about how they're treated in there people without access to a toilet. They're thrown into solitary confinement. There's just like a little drain in the middle of the floor for them to use as a toilet wow. for months on end. They're sometimes thrown in, they're naked, they're in mm. mental health crisis. So they're not being given access to medical care. This kind of thing happens over and over again. We need to, as a country, work towards eliminating solitary confinement entirely.
0: Now, the state has new rules for the application of solitary confinement for prisoners. Can you run down some of those rules?
4: We got a ban on solitary confinement for children. We got a ban for pregnant inmates. Okay. And really harsh restrictions on who can be put into solitary confinement if they're suffering from a serious mental illness these systems are black boxes right they're designed to be secretive and abuse and mistreatment happens behind closed doors so we got really important reporting mechanisms that cover not just our state prisons but also our jails and new mexico is one of the states with a very large jail population ultimately though new mexico needs to go much further
0: now we've heard from people who are incarcerated that People are being thrown into solitary confinement for punitive reasons that are beyond the limits of these new rules you just described. But the guards are saying it's quarantine. What's the real situation going on here?
4: COVID-19 has been a nightmare for all of us. It's been a particularly harsh nightmare for people that are incarcerated. This isn't new. Corrections administrators are often using the excuse, whether solitary confinement or any other harsh punitive measure in these facilities, that they need leeway and they need discretion to do whatever they want, essentially, to run these facilities because they know best. Hmm. And that's definitely been true with COVID-19. And the way people have been quarantined, it's not just that people have been thrown into solitary confinement. I mean, we get letter after letter calls from loved ones every day from folks that are saying they're testing negative for COVID-19 and they're being placed in the same cell with people who have tested positive. positive. Mm. I mean, it's unbelievably unsafe conditions in there. Certainly. New Mexico did not do nearly enough to just reduce the population and pull people out. That should be the remedy, not solitary confinement. I
0: want to ask you about that, because, you know, last year the governor issued an order to release nonviolent offenders to jail to prevent the spread of COVID. But the state has not released as many prisoners as it could have. Yep. Why, according to your understanding, haven't more people who qualify? Why haven't they been released?
4: For one thing, I think the order didn't go far enough. The advocates on the ground were saying, you know, they should release everyone who's due to be released in six months or a year. There's medical release, geriatric release, all of these things that should have been looked at. Instead, the governor order is 30 days. You know, if you're within 30 days of a release, you Hmm. can get out. That's not even close to good enough. I have personal experience with working with family members and people that are incarcerated that qualified even under her order and still weren't getting out. I had to pull the lawyer card, harass the corrections department, write letters to wardens to make things happen. That can't happen in every instance. They're not even following the order as it stands, which is insufficient to begin with.
0: He is Stephen Allen, the director of the New Mexico Prison and Jail Project. Stephen, thanks for coming on No More Normal. I hope to have you on again soon.
4: Thank you so much for everything you're doing.
0: You know, something I think we can all agree on is that living in a pandemic creates hardships that can be difficult to overcome. To be homeless in a pandemic, you can increase those hardships exponentially. To get a better understanding of how people and families who don't have shelter endured the pandemic and to discover what is being done now to help them, I'm joined by Nadia Faisal, Lead Advisor for Public Health at Healthcare for the Homeless in Albuquerque. Nadia, welcome to Nomono. Thanks for being with me.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: So can you describe for me the environment of the past year for your organization? What were some of the urgencies that you all had to address as the pandemic really set in?
5: Homelessness in general is a hazard and an emergency just by the nature of what it is. We were pretty well poised to pivot to handle yet another emergency and crisis, Mm -hmm. which was COVID. So we shifted a lot of our resources and staff to really respond to that in a way that was needed. We began by going where the people were. Our model has always been not site-based, but Mm -hmm. outreach and just really go where the folks are, whether that's in another location or where folks are sleeping rough. Mm -hmm. Since then, we've been managing that crisis mode with the addition of COVID for the last year or so and have just changed as the circumstances have changed and gone where the people were.
0: Mm -hmm. And seeing in that adaptation, have you all seen more people needing your services in the last year?
5: Definitely. So the increase in homelessness is not a unique thing that has happened with COVID. It's been steadily increasing in the United States over the past several years. Mm. And COVID isn't, exactly helping the situation. So of course the numbers have increased. We have just seen uniquely different folks who have ended up homeless as a result of what seems like the pandemic and have tried to adapt and help these folks because They're either newly homeless or they are on the cusp of being homeless or, you know, just an increase in the number of folks who are out on the streets or in shelters. And it becomes a burden on these systems. So it's our job to really make sure that their needs are met, that their services are there for them.
0: And with the services you all offer, what kind of outreach did you all do to help people get tested or even vaccinated?
5: So we have an outreach and a vaccination strategy, which goes a bit hand in hand. The city of Albuquerque specifically now had these sort of more location-based places where folks who were experiencing homelessness who also had the additional burden of being COVID positive were now sort of gathered in other areas. So our outreach just shifted. We did COVID testing on the streets. We did COVID testing at these other sites. The vaccination strategy has been sort of three prongs. We try and do sort of smaller vaccine clinics on campus. We do vaccine administration on street outreach, and we've been supporting the larger effort to do larger based vaccine clinics at larger shelter sites.
0: Is there anything that you want people to know about what they have access to? I mean, what kind of help they could get that people may not know of already?
5: We want folks to know that moving forward our focus is on things like medical respite which is, you know, a pathway into housing and things like, you know, stimulus payments. So those kinds of things are really important to keep in the forefront.
0: She is the lead advisor for public health at the Healthcare for the Homeless in Albuquerque, Nadia Fazel. Thank you again for being with me. Thank you. This time last year, New Day Youth and Family Services was just starting their preparations for the pandemic. The nonprofit provides shelter and other programs for young people experiencing homelessness. The staff there was dealing with school closures and practicing safe social distancing just like everyone else. Now, like the majority of people, they're still fighting against COVID-19 and making sure the kids they work with remain safe. Reporter Taylor Velasquez followed up one year later with Brooke DeFoya, Director of Operations for New Day.
6: So we just reached the one year mark of the pandemic. Can you talk about how this last year affected New Day and the kids you serve? You know, I think, like, with
7: everyone in the world, really, this collective experience, not really ever knowing how long it was going to go. And, you know, since we just passed the year marker, I remember so clearly on March 16th of uh, 2020, sitting together and realizing that we were asking everyone to go home. And we didn't really know when we were going to come back. And then what that means when you work with young people. So we really had a a hybrid model all along, we had a youth shelter, and that's, stayed open, we had to change some of our ways that we had people come in to make sure we were protecting the youth who are already in the shelter and our staff, but we're open every single day throughout the entire time. We worked with all of our young people across the entire agency and talked to young people about like, what is this thing and how do you stay safe and what can we do to support you? And then just, you know, the constant readjusting, you know, in the very beginning, when I look back, I think, gosh, we came up with all these new procedures and ways we were doing business, but we were kind of all thinking that it was gonna be for three or four months. And for young people, I think the misnomer was that, oh, well, in this new digital world, so many of our young people are already very digitally literate. This is going to be easy. It's going to be fine. They're going to like it. And what we learned pretty quickly is "Mm, not really. (laughs) There were things about it that were nice, and they still wanted people to come and see them. They still wanted to have those connections.
6: So you just brought up technology and we know that there's been disparities in getting students access to things like computers and the internet. And we also know that there's been massive shortages of bus drivers. How would this make it hard for kids to go back to school? I mean, to me, this is a huge equity
7: issue. Getting people access and good access, not just any kind of access to internet supports. it's essential. And then also equipment that can do it. Because one of the things we learned is that Young people who are assigned computers, for many, APS for sure, and some of the other schools, they're not allowed to use those computers for things other than their schoolwork. So they couldn't use it to go to an online therapy. And so now, even though they have this technology in their hands, they can't use it for other things. And so that put us in a situation working with lots of community partners. How do we help young people get access to technology so they can access mental health services so they're engaging with people and able to feel connected to a larger sense of community?
6: Yeah, it seems like kids are being asked to adapt very quickly to their circumstances. So what are you hearing from the kids you shelter about their experiences during COVID-19? There's
7: a lot of isolation. It's been difficult to be able to connect young people to kind of larger sets. And there is most definitely a behavioral health. We don't have enough clinicians. If you want to go to see a therapist, there is a wait list. And and so many of our young people who are wanting to access that kind of support. And now for young people to say, you know, actually, I think it could be helpful. And then for us not to really have the resource in our community because,
6: oh, well, you could see someone in two months. (laughs) That's a long time when you're needing the support right now. A report done by New Mexico Voices for Children states that over 10,000 New Mexican children experience homelessness over a course of one school year. Has this number grown over the past year and has this impacted your work? We have a street outreach
7: program that is out there working with young people, and just as we're seeing more people who are on the streets, more visible homelessness, we are seeing more visible homelessness amongst young people as well. And so it could be a sign that young people are experiencing homelessness in different ways, and it could be a sign of the times just of COVID and all of the unusual things that have happened in this past year.
6: Right. And it seems like there's a lot of uncertainty about youth homelessness and what that means. So what do you wish people knew about the young people you serve who are experiencing homelessness? I wish that... People would know
7: that there are so many factors why young people become unhoused. And they are everything from a young person running away to a person's guardian passing away to a young person's guardian being deported. The reason we need to have such a comprehensive model is because no two stories are the same. And I really would just love for people to know that we have to support young people because when I hear people talk about prevention and wanting to end homelessness, well, if we work on preventing youth homelessness, then we are working to prevent and end homelessness for our entire community.
6: She's Brooke Tafoya, Director of Operations at New Day Youth and Family Services. Thanks for being on the show again, Brooke, and we hope to have you on again in the future. Oh, thank you so much, Taylor. I appreciate it, too.
0: This is No More Normal, I'm Khalil Egalona. We are looking back at the past year, acknowledging what we have learned. In the first half of the show, you've heard from the director of a youth shelter and family services organization, the president of the Navajo Nation, and the Archbishop of the Archdiocese of Santa Fe. Coming up, hear conversations with members of the Red Nation about police, the New Mexico Secretary of State on voting rights, and more. Stay tuned. No More Normal is brought to you by Your New Mexico Government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the. Santa Fe reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the Kellogg Foundation and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Hear us each week on KUNM Sundays at 11 a.m. Find past episodes online at KUNM.org or wherever you look for podcasts. Child care workers have been essential to families before and during the pandemic, but many of them have been struggling with low wages and the lack of safety nets like consistent hazard pay, clear guidelines for what happens if they or a family member falls sick or has to quarantine, and where state subsidies for child care centers end up. Karina Pizarro is one of thousands of child care workers in New Mexico, and she says even after a year, she and her co-workers are still unclear on what benefits they're eligible for. Reporter Yasmin Khan talked with Pizarro about her experience over the past year.
8: Childcare workers around the state have continued to care for children of essential workers throughout the pandemic. However, many of them are not eligible for federal or state pandemic benefits like the stimulus check. Karina Pizarro is a preschool teacher at a child care center that is supported in part with funds from the Children, Youth and Family Department. She kept working full time throughout the pandemic, except for a few days the center closed because of a COVID infection. She says nothing has changed for her or her co-workers since the start of the pandemic because they are still in the dark about what support is available to them from CYFD or federal resources. She's one of eight early childcare workers at her center.
9: Yo me siento igual no siento I
8: I feel the same. I don't feel like I got sufficient benefits in any sense not information or economic benefits. I earned my same salary the normal one
9: mi sueldo normal.
8: That normal salary is about $1,300 per month or $11.80 per hour, which Pizarro says is not enough. She says she needs at least double that per month to support her family, which includes two children ages 7 and 8, and she's pregnant with her third child. She's the only person working in her household. She also said she finds it absurd that women working for 10 or 15 years still earn the same salary as she does after 5 years.
9: Obviamente, se me hace injusto porque somos personas que.
8: Obviously, it is unfair because we pay taxes. It is unfair. So many people are waiting for that federal stimulus check, but for me, I don't get anything. We only have the option to keep working.
9: Y personas como nosotros la única opción que tenemos es seguir trabajando. No nos queda de otra.
8: Pizarro, who is 30, says she is not eligible for any federal benefits, not unemployment or the federal stimulus check. She says none of the women working at her center have gotten the vaccine, even though they've been eligible for it since March 15th, according to Matt Bieber of the New Mexico Department of Health. Pizarro says she and her coworkers didn't get clear information about their vaccine eligibility, which she says is a continuation of the lack of information on what benefits are available to early childcare workers ever since the pandemic began.
9: Nos ven como niñeras. Porque hay muchas personas que todavía piensan que ser maestra de educación temprana es ser una nana es nada más pañales, There are
8: many people who gocilla. think being a teacher of early education is to Nosotros be a babysitter and change pens- diapers and teach kids to use the toilet. También. We make weekly lesson plans for each child so each one learns to walk, to speak, to socialize. We work in areas of emotional development, motor skills development. I don't understand how, for the authorities, we are of such little value. Pizarro says the biggest barrier that remains for her and her coworkers is the low pay, and that they have been asking for a meaningful raise to $18 per hour for the past year. She also wants more clarity on how her child care center spends CYFD funds and more information on if child care workers are eligible for benefits.
9: No, no hay ninguna conexión directa entre nosotras con CYFD, o sea, ni tampoco la, la directora nos da esa información, o sea.
8: There is no connection directly between us and CYFD, and the director doesn't give us information either. We need everything to be more transparent. If there is money for childcare workers, it should just go to us directly and not the directors. Sometimes we think there might be money for us, but we never know. And we don't ask because we just don't know. Why don't they tell us, too? Sometimes they say the money is for furniture and materials, but we don't see that either. There should be transparency of how that money is spent. Pizarro says she hopes that parents who have their children at home during the pandemic will value the work of early childhood teachers, and if they do, she asks that parents speak up.
9: If they really consider that we do a great job,
8: if they really think we're doing good work, they should make a call or an email to the authorities, the Secretary of Education or CYFD, and tell them clearly what we mean to them and their families. It would be good to tell the authorities that we are important to society. Pizarro says she hopes the focus on the needs of essential workers during the pandemic, including early childcare workers, will help women like her win better wages, benefits like paid sick leave, and more respect for their work. For No More Normal, I'm Yasmin Khan.
0: The summer of 2020 was hot. The third episode of No More Normal was titled, The Streets Are Hot. The tensions and severity of the response to racial justice protests were felt here in Albuquerque when a man was shot at a demonstration. The Red Nation Coalition was there too. I spoke to Melanie Ozzie and Cleo Otero about last year and what they are prepared for now.
10: So yeah, the pandemic was really difficult. And although we did take to the streets during the summer, kind of the long hot summer of uprisings that everyone experienced throughout the United States, It was really difficult to make the decisions, right, about making sure that we were protecting ourselves from the pandemic. It was strange to be kind of bound in our homes. So we were just kind of going out to actions and then getting tested and doing all these quarantine kind of mechanisms. But then the violence was literally being brought to our homes because we were trapped kind of at home, right? And we weren't able to do the kind of organizing and to be able to have that kind of collective response we normally would have. To that kind of violence so of course the new mexico civil guard tried to bring a lynch mob to the home of me and my partner here in our neighborhood in albuquerque it created a a very strange i would say environment that the red nation had to really think on our feet and how to respond to that under
0: the conditions of the pandemic did other organizations really reach out to you all to assist
10: yeah absolutely we started to do more community defense all community defense means is Different organizations were doing these shifts, right, to protect our home, to make sure we were okay. People were staying here. The community came together in those moments when we were facing these people who actually wanted to hurt us. Yeah. Not just the Red Nation, but all of the people doing this
0: work. we that nexus of Police activity and militia folks happened was at the Onyate statue where a gentleman was shot. He has survived, but he was shot. As of now, the city is still unsure about what to do with the Onyate statue. Do you all have suggestions for them as to what they can do with it?
10: Leo. <laughs> I know what I
11: want them to do. Yeah, <laughs> I say burn it. It symbolizes everything that was bad that has been done to our people of indigenous walks. It's not something that is a symbol of what they say. It's his story, not our story. Yeah. (laughs) Get rid of it. Destroy it. Yeah.
10: Yeah. Melt it down. We don't need it on display. There's a reason why, you know, our comrade was shot at that particular protest. It's because there is such a violent defense of that type of kind of colonial heteropatriarchal legacy that continues, you know, as part of like the longer struggle against genocide that Native people are engaged in in this state. And there's a reason why there were a bunch of armed men. It's a violent legacy. 500 years ago, and it's a violent legacy today. We we're part of the proceedings, the preliminary hearings last fall. And I don't believe there's been much follow-up at all. And you can use the pandemic as an excuse, but Stephen Baca's walking free yeah. in Albuquerque today. When you don't actually hold these men accountable for what they're doing, you're terrorizing native women and you're terrorizing people on a stolen indigenous land.
0: Have you all been in conversations with the police department, with the city of Albuquerque and authorities there, not as far as this Stephen Baca shooting case, but the concerns that you all have been addressing and raising?
10: We don't collaborate with the police as a principal in the Red Nation. You know, the police have been continuing to kill people. We see the police. We see APD as just an occupation force, essentially. The police
11: also have been targeting the unsheltered relatives everywhere. We have been feeding in the international district has been fenced off or closed off mm. last night we were off of the central louisiana area there's a little parking lot that we used to stop off at too and that's been completely cordoned off as well i believe that's just like shutting out the homeless folks you know they're not there to protect us they're not there to protect the unsheltered folks they harass them they tear down their shelters For me, it's like a boots on the ground kind of work that we miss. I really do miss that. We're connecting with the folks and we still do on a weekly basis. However, it's gotten limited with like the variant coming out and all Mm -hmm. this other COVID restrictions, but we're still doing it. We're still doing it and we will continue to do it.
0: Mm -hmm. And looking at the future, tell me about some of the methods and the ways that you are, are regrouping.
10: We just want to get back out and organizing campaigns, right? Mm-hmm. We want to be out helping our people, doing harm reduction, feeding them, providing shelter, right? We have a book we just wrote, it's called The Red Deal. It's actually coming out on April 20th, I can provide the link if folks want it. But it's basically an indigenous vision of like how we go about climate justice and climate change and really like centering decolonization and land back in that vision. The Red Deal identifies all of these areas of struggle where people can like plug in.
0: I wanna thank both of you, both of you so much for being with me and thank you for the work that you're doing. Melanie Ozzie, Cleo Otero from The Red Nation, thank you both so much. Maggie Toulouse Oliver is the Secretary of State for New Mexico, meaning she is in charge of organizing our elections. She also serves as the president for the nonpartisan National Association of Secretaries of State. She knows about elections and how hard they can be. A general election during a pandemic, and it was that general election. I asked her about what was on her mind this time last year.
12: Coming into the election, I knew it was going to be a crazy year you know, overall, I think what it really did was give us an opportunity to rise to an incredible challenge, which I think that we did. And so in retrospect, I think we have a lot to be proud of. It wasn't because it was easy to navigate through. It was incredibly complex and difficult, but You know, I think the outcome
0: speaks for itself. Do you feel that by going through this really wild, crazy, arduous, tiring experience, it kind of allowed you and your office and staff to kind of level up?
12: Absolutely. One of the challenges of our offices, we're always understaffed. We're always underfunded, right? There's always more that we want to do with less. Mm -hmm. However, this last year really helped crystallize our priorities, what do we really have to do, what do we need to do? And in that sense, absolutely, I think we all leveled up because when you can ascertain what really needs my focus and what's just gonna be okay, right? Yeah. If, I don't, if I don't address that right now in this moment, I think that makes anybody more
0: effective. We heard about some problems with ballot access, mail-in ballots, polling locations for people in tribal lands during the 2020 election cycle. What is your office doing to preserve people's voting rights in the future on tribal lands?
12: We learned a lot from. Particularly the primary election and the challenges we had there with just keeping polling places open in light of those communities being closed down. We made a lot of progress in the special legislative session over the summer and in the fall to make that access greater. So far this year, we've had at least one great success on this front, which is working with the legislature to pass a permanent piece of legislation that protects those tribal communities, particularly in light of any public emergency. Um, to ensure that they can have their polling places. We still have a lot of work to do. And I'll be working with our Native American voting task force moving forward um, to, to continue to expand that access.
0: OK, so in essence, you're saying that some of the things that you all discovered, some of the moves you made to protect their voting rights last year have now been, well, passed throughout the legislation to, hey, we found this. This really works. We want to keep this in case of another emergency.
12: That's exactly right. And okay. and the truth is I think if we've learned anything from the pandemic it's that any sort of emergency or crazy thing can happen that we can't foresee, that yeah. we want to make sure that we do have the tools in place to mitigate and manage.
0: You in your office, you were able to introduce legislation aimed at expanding voting rights and some of them passed. Can you tell me about some of these measures that you all were able to push through?
12: There was a lot that was left on the legislative table that we are going to be working on in the course of the next year to still try to get passed. One of them in particular that I feel very strongly about is the right to vote being instantly restored to folks who are no longer incarcerated. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a big move in the state. I think we have the political will there to get it passed before next year's primary and general elections. As I've often said, the good thing and the bad thing about elections is that there's always more work to do.
0: Voting rights are under attack across the country, most notably in Georgia. As Governor Brian Kemp just signed a very controversial bill into law that President Biden himself called the new Jim Crow, that bill and others like it would limit voting access to millions of Americans, primarily African-Americans and Latino Americans in their communities. Tell me, how do you feel about this new law that they just passed in Georgia?
12: I think it's very disappointing, and I'm extremely disappointed that my colleague, the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who really stood up for the rule of law in the 2020 presidential election, Mm -hmm. you know, I think he felt compelled politically to support what is functionally really bad restrictive legislation.
0: New Mexico doesn't want other states telling them what to do, but have you ever just pulled one of your colleagues aside and said, you know, this law seems incredibly, incredibly racist?
12: I have had those conversations on a one-on-one basis. Some of my colleagues are dealing with legislatures that are pushing very aggressive and even racist legislative agendas, it's a challenge, I think, when they may feel differently from what the dominant political agenda is in their state. Mm -hmm. And particularly my colleagues on the Democratic side, Jocelyn Benson in Michigan, Katie Hobbs in Arizona, they're struggling with very aggressive, restrictive agendas in their states and really trying to push back hard.
0: She is the Secretary of State for the Great State of New Mexico, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. Madam Secretary, as always, pleasure to talk with you thank you.
12: Thank you so much.
0: As vaccines are being injected into the arms of New Mexicans, new cases of COVID-19 are being identified. While people are excited to get to social activities, authorities are stressing a continued push for social distancing and maintaining COVID guidelines. Joining me now is Matt Bieber, who serves as the spokesperson for the New Mexico Department of Health. Matt, Welcome to No More Normal. Thanks so much for having me. Talk to me about this past year at the DOH. We've had a pandemic hit that truly stressed out our healthcare system. What have you all learned about our system's general structure? Where are the holes and what's working well?
13: Well, Let me say a couple things right off the bat. I've only been a part of the department for a couple of months, and I joined right about the time as our new secretary, Dr. Tracy Collins, a UNM alum. Uh, One of the things she's really emphasized right out of the gate is that New Mexico, like locations across the country has inequities in our healthcare system, and those play out across racial and ethnic lines. And COVID has exposed that in a more dramatic way than many folks were aware of. We're seeing that now with the vaccination effort, where registration and vaccination rates aren't equal across racial and ethnic communities. And I think the way she sees that is this is an opportunity. Now that we can see the inequities even more clearly, it's also an opportunity to address them, to recognize, name, address them in a more serious way than we have before. So that's, in some sense, been a silver lining in all of this. Of course, a lot of real work needs to be done to fill in those gaps and to make healthcare access more equitable across the state.
0: And Speaking of those inequities, you know, not all New Mexicans are being vaccinated at the same rate. We look at, according to the CDC, 40% of New Mexican adults have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine and about 27% of adult New Mexicans are fully vaccinated. Those numbers are tops in the nation. Kudos on that. But Taking a closer look at the numbers, only 17 percent of Hispanic or Latino residents and 13 percent of African-American residents have been fully vaccinated. I want to ask you a question. Given the small number of African-Americans living in New Mexico, can you explain why that number is so low?
13: Well, I can take a stab at it. I don't think I have all the answers. I don't think we have all the answers, but here's here's some things we think we're seeing. We think we're seeing different registration rates across different racial and ethnic communities, mm-hmm. lower registration rates, for vaccine among some of the groups you just mentioned. Now, that's not an effort to blame anybody, of course. We're very conscious that there are some historical issues that certain racial and ethnic groups are conscious of that might be creating questions or hesitancy about registration, some distrust perhaps. There are rumors moving through different communities at different rates that have also perhaps inhibited uh, enthusiasm for for registration. Um, But there are also things that DOH can do to address some of those inequities in terms of targeted events for members of individual racial and ethnic groups. And that's beginning to happen as well to try to get the rates up across groups. So there's a lot of moving parts. Some of it's in the hands of DOH and the state to address some of its larger cultural and societal issues that we all need to work through together, I think.
0: You know, but like the Navajo Nation and other tribal governments have managed to get vaccines to their people who have every reason in the world to distrust it and to distrust the governmental system. What specific steps are you all taking to engage more people of the African-American community? and the Latino Hispanic community. I mean, they make up 47% of all COVID cases, yet their numbers of vaccination are really not that high.
13: Sure. Well, let me just say one thing about the Native American community first, because I think that's a distinct group for this reason. The federal government has an agency called the Indian Health Service, and most of New Mexico's tribal communities chose to get vaccine through that agency initially, and then have also, in some cases, gotten doses from the state. So, you know, I I don't say this is necessarily a good thing uh, or a bad thing, but it is just a fact that there are different kinds of support available for the Native American community that aren't necessarily available to other communities in New Mexico. With regard to your question specifically, we have an office of health equity within DOH. A woman named Amy Suman runs that, really a powerhouse in connecting with and forming partnerships with local trusted voices among various racial and ethnic communities throughout New Mexico. She's been doing town halls, for example, for the Black community, for the Latinx community, for other communities, just to address the specific kinds of questions or concerns that may be arising in those communities, but also partnering, as I said, with trusted voices in those communities, because I think as with everything, you know, we trust the folks that we know the best that are part of our Mm worlds. And when voices are speaking that we know and trust, we're more likely to listen.
0: Tell me about the rollout to the more rural parts of the state.
13: A couple weeks ago, we rolled out our equity plan, which includes an allocation element in which we're distributing doses to communities with high social vulnerability indices, you know, figuring out exactly how many hundred doses a small town in rural New Mexico needs and how much uptake and desire there will be in that community, it's not an exact science. So we're seeing issues, for example, where, you know, we send a batch of doses to a rural community and then it turns out that demand is saturated in that place. And we have to do some things last minute to ensure that those doses get used
0: are you all working with school districts to vaccinate teachers and school staff as there is a concerted push to get schools to reopen and do you expect a full in-person return to school in the fall
13: you know i think with regard to school reopening questions i'd refer you to ped we basically did a a huge push to get uh, educators vaccinated over the past three or four weeks and we've gotten through them largely and that's part of the reason we've been able one to pivot back to prioritizing seniors And to begin opening up the final phase, Uh, beginning on Monday, April 5th, every adult 16 and over in New Mexico will be eligible for vaccine.
0: Anyone who's older than 75 no longer needs an event code to get vaccinated in the state. Are there any other changes you want to make sure that people are aware of? Yeah,
13: very soon folks will be able to self-schedule their booster appointments as well. We hope to get to a point in which everybody will be able to log in without an event code and choose a location and time near them that works for them.
0: What is the likelihood that New Mexicans who are fully vaccinated will have to go on a series of booster shots?
13: The one thing we don't yet know about the vaccines is how long immunity will last. And it could be, as you described, you know, just like we get a flu shot every year, we might get a COVID shot every year. And it becomes just something we manage as opposed to something that's kind of taken over our lives for a year.
0: Matt Bieber is the spokesperson for the New Mexico Department of Health. Matt, thanks so much for being with me. Absolutely. Good to talk to you. Last year, New Mexicans and businesses suffered financial hardship due to the economic shutdown due to COVID-19. We are looking at how we as a state are going to rebound. No one better to talk to than someone from the New Mexico Department of Finance and Administration. Here with me joining on Nomono is Henry Valdez, who was the spokesperson for the New Mexico Department of Finance and Administration. Henry, thanks for being with me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. What we're talking about is housing and keeping people in their homes as a means of preventing an eviction crisis due to rent not being paid.
14: What I'm here to kind of speak on is the rental assistance that we are providing. It's $170 million of federal aid that we're trying to give to New Mexicans for rental and utility assistance for households experiencing financial hardships due to the COVID-19 you know, obviously, we've, we we're seeing a lot of New Mexicans have different challenges that that have come about because of the pandemic, and hopefully, this fund will help to ease some of the rental and utility challenges
0: that uh, that they're facing right now. Now, speaking about this this program that your department just recently launched, how and when can people apply, and what will they get once they apply?
14: So, people can start to apply April fifth, and the program will run. But right now we're looking about to the beginning of fall mm-hmm. and a summer so august 31st but again that that window may open up but what we're trying to do is encourage people to go to the website to renthelpnm.org and look over the FAQ see the eligibility review the information and the documentation that they'll need for applying so that way they can help package their application correctly and accordingly. And then that way our review process can be
0: pretty streamlined. Now, as far as eligibility, people in Bernalillo County, Dona Ana County, and people living on tribal lands cannot apply for the program. Why is that?
14: So not to this program, but those local governments are, and tribal governments are administering their own programs. So we do have links to their
0: websites. Okay. Now this program as I see it is just for renters, what about folks who can't make mortgage payments?
14: So right now, this program, yeah, it's just for renters, but we're fairly confident that there will be some sort of mortgage assistance to those individuals. Perhaps it'll come in the next stimulus that the federal government will
0: disperse. Are the payments going to go directly to the property owners and the utility companies? Yes, that's kind of how the majority of these will will roll out. Now, do you think that this program is enough to really prevent people from losing their homes around the state?
14: Well, to lose their homes kind of a a very broad, because I think that encompasses people with mortgages. Hmm. But I think this is like the first step in helping people keep the places that they're they're currently living in, Mm -hmm. right?
0: Now, talking about the rollout of this program and informing people, how can you all ensure that... The people in most need are going to have knowledge about the program and access to funds. How is the DFA really going about informing everyone eligible that these funds are here? They're here available to alleviate some of your financial pain.
14: Well, there's a, a couple of things we're doing. I mean, I would say the, the first part is speaking to platforms like yours. We're also doing a really big rollout, a big marketing effort in trying to get you know those communities that may not have access to kind of the traditional media. Mm-hmm. We're also with, in terms of the application process, there is a paper application. There is a, a toll-free number that people will be able to call. So if they can't access a computer or can't access the internet, they can still apply.
0: Okay. He is Henry Valdez, spokesperson for the New Mexico Department of Finance and Administration. Thank you again for talking with me. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. The state has done it. Recreational marijuana has passed the state legislature and is soon to be put in the books by the governor. What does that really mean for New Mexico, aside from the supply of rolling papers running thin? Find out next week on No More Normal. Thanks to all of our guests for offering their experience and expertise. Shout out to Zaley Pollen, Yasmin Khan, and Taylor Velasquez for their contributions. And virtual high fives to Zaley, Taylor, and Megan Kamrick for the editing help. Thanks to Jazstone, the producer, Cheo, Dom Life, Business School, Sundog, and Olad Records for providing music for the show. Khaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawat produced some of the show's themes. Many thanks to artist Vanessa Bowen for providing the artwork for the online version of this week's show. Here's a little Numono trivia. She also created our logo. Thanks, Nessa. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It's hosted and produced by yours truly. Taylor Velasquez handles social media and content development. I'm Khalil Ikelona. For everyone here at No More Normal, thanks for listening.